Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, elder abuse, prescription drug abuse, suicide, and addiction. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In medicine, standards of care define what a patient should expect from their healthcare providers. They're basic guidelines that lay out what the patient deserves at a minimum. And they're so important, many countries have them encoded into law. On the other hand, expectations for patients are much more fluid. Unless you're John Bodkin Adams. The British doctor had very specific ideas of how often his patients should see him, how they should compensate him, and even how long they should live. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to assist Alistair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. John Botkin Adams, a most controversial practitioner whose bad behavior inspired vital physician oversight in his small English town that ultimately set standards for doctors around the world. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Dr. John Bodkin Adams. Adams is believed to have killed over a hundred of his elderly patients between 1935 and 1956 in the Sussex area of England. Last week, we examined how he may have overprescribed sedatives to pacify his patients and gain access to their wealth. In a twisted way, he believed he deserved their money. Today, we'll follow Scotland Yard's investigation of Adam's crimes and the tumultuous murder trial that forever changed the British medical legal system. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? 
Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. By 1956, John Bodkin Adams was a controversial figure in Eastbourne, England. He was the attending physician at the death of numerous wealthy patients, many of whom were widows, and he had become obscenely wealthy. The question was whether Adams had become so wealthy through an honest living or if he was murdering his patients after securing access to their riches the people of Eastbourne were split. The debates came to a head that summer of 1956. Adams had been practicing in the town for about two decades when one of his patients, a vivacious socialite named Gertrude Bobby Hullett, died under suspicious circumstances. Adams listed natural causes on her cremation form, but the rumors inspired the coroner to perform a detailed autopsy. He found twice the fatal dosage of sodium barbitol in Bobby's system. If this finding was accurate, the long-acting barbiturate would have pushed her into a sleep she never awoke from. A very unnatural death. Given the gravity of the accusation, the coroner sought a second opinion. He brought in Dr. Francis Camps. Dr. Camps rose to prominence by helping to take down a notorious serial killer just three years prior. Today, he's considered one of the founding fathers of forensic pathology. So having Camps on the case heightened the stakes significantly. If the coroner wanted a second opinion, and from such an accomplished forensic pathologist no less, he likely suspected homicide. Dr. Camps examined Bobby Hullett, and his findings supported the coroner's. He ruled that Bobby's death was due to bronchopneumonia and respiratory failure, brought on by barbiturate poisoning. Camps also found it suspicious that Dr. Adams hadn't listed barbiturates as the cause of death. After all, Adams had employed Megamide, a drug specifically designed to combat barbiturate overdose, just days before Bobby Hullett's death. Dr. Camps and the coroner brought their findings to the police, who contacted Scotland Yard. Dr. John Bodkin Adams was now a murder suspect. 
Scotland Yard attended an official inquest on August 21, 1956, less than one month after Bobby Hullett's death. But they weren't just looking into Bobby's death. They dug into 300 different wills, all from Dr. Adams' deceased patients. Adams' entire career was under the magnifying glass. A medical inquest is initiated when the cause of someone's death is under question, and it's even an event that's open to the public. In Wales and England, coroners have a duty to investigate a death when someone dies violently or unnaturally, when someone's cause of death is unknown, or when a person dies while in state custody. If a cause of death remains undetermined after a thorough post-mortem examination, it's then the coroner's responsibility to initiate an inquest. At this point, the family must be notified and the coroner needs to request and collect all documents, testimonials, witnesses, and medical histories they feel may be necessary to uncovering the mystery behind a death. Typically, these investigative hearings take about one to five days, but it's not unheard of for some to last several weeks. Ultimately, the verdicts from these inquests can be used as evidence in civil court proceedings, and many use the findings as ammunition in negligence suits against culpable doctors. This inquest in our story would allow people in Bobby's life to directly weigh in on what they saw Dr. Adams doing behind closed doors. As the inquest proceeded, Adams listened as witnesses demeaned his good name. Nurses described his secretive bedside tactics and aggressive nature toward other household staff. Adams could feel unfair judgment coursing through the air. But then, Bobby Hullett's daughter testified that her mother had suffered from suicidal ideations. The uncertainty regarding Bobby's mental health critically undermined the theory that Adams murdered her. The inquest committee concluded that Bobby died by suicide. Adams was free to go. With his name cleared, Dr. John Bodkin Adams returned to his normal life. As far as he was concerned, once the rumors receded, the press would back off and his shining reputation would be restored. But little did Adams know, Scotland Yard wasn't off his trail just yet. Detective Superintendent Herbert Hannam had arrived in the area before attending the inquest to investigate the merits of a criminal case. Hannam was known as a vicious bulldog of a detective, the kind of man who would go to any length to secure a confession. Even after the inquest ruled Bobby died by suicide, Hannam kept investigating. He spoke to those who knew Adams best, the local nurses of Eastbourne. They were as divided as the townsfolk. Many praised Adams for his willingness to go above and beyond for his patients. They viewed his thorough applied care as equivalent to charity. But other nurses viewed that same diligence through a different lens, believing that Adams only exercised such care and thoughtfulness to get closer to his patients' fortunes. They described seeing Adams inject unknown substances into his patients. Unfortunately, this still wasn't hard evidence. 
So Hannam turned to the local physicians, hoping they might share some insight. But before he could interview even one, the British Medical Association stepped in. They sent a letter to every Eastbourne physician reminding them of their obligations to professional secrecy. Perhaps the BMA thought that if a doctor were found guilty of the death of a patient, especially through accident, the fallout could be substantial. Meaning, if Adams was found guilty, then any doctor involved with a patient's death could potentially face a similar fate. So Hannum was forced to change tact. If the doctors wouldn't talk to him, he would turn to the people of Eastbourne themselves. Hannum went door to door, systematically interviewing anyone who'd ever interacted with the doctor. Detective Superintendent Hannum found that the people of Eastbourne loved to talk, especially about Adams. Their tales weren't limited to the recent past either. Hannum heard stories spanning decades. His dossier on Adams' behavior soon filled hundreds of pages. With this many cases over this many years, the detective desperately needed a way to separate suspicious behavior from actual criminality. He needed a Hail Mary. It came in the form of Dr. Francis Camps. Ever since Camps completed Bobby Hullett's autopsy, he'd been dissecting the death certificates that Adams filed between 1946 and 1956. Two patterns aroused his suspicion. First, Adams had frequently listed cerebral thrombosis or cerebral hemorrhage as the cause of death. Now, in the UK at the time, those conditions killed between 14 and 17% of elderly patients, so to see them on death certificates was par for the course. Until Camps did the math. He found Adam's patients died of these courses at a rate of 42%, nearly three times the average. This is definitely a red flag, Alistair. Cerebral thrombosis and cerebral hemorrhages are definitely events that are much more frequent among the elderly. However, for this to be so prevalent in one doctor's practice, given its UK-wide statistical database, it must have been clear that something sinister was going on. When forensic pathologists discover aberrations, like the one here, it's very important for them to put on a full-court press on finding and investigating the reasons behind it. These explorations can hopefully shine a light on certain unknowns and rule out any relevant environmental factors. In this case, though, I struggle to imagine what those could realistically be. These conditions are influenced by a lot of things, like age, genetics, lifestyle choices, and confounding health issues like diabetes, for instance. Who knows, though, maybe Adams was just lazy. It's definitely strange that he listed cerebral thrombosis in so many death certificates, but it's possible that he was irresponsibly using this diagnosis as a shorthand for a variety of related diseases. Put simply, if he wasn't a killer, he was sure a slacker. Though Dr. Francis Camps wasn't entirely convinced that Adams was simply a lazy physician, because he spotted another 
odd trend. Many of Adam's patients likely died while in a coma. Of 310 patients that Adams filed death certificates for, 163 were thought to have died under these circumstances. Camps theorized the high number of deaths might actually be evidence of something else. Opiate overdose. Camps forwarded the 163 suspicious cases to Detective Superintendent Hannum. But 163 cases was an enormous burden for Scotland Yard to tackle. To winnow his caseload, Hannum cross-referenced Camp's cases with patients who had died shortly after naming Adams in their wills. There were 23 matches. Hannum was dumbfounded. He had come to Eastbourne solely to investigate the death of Bobby Hullett, but instead, he discovered a possible serial killer. Up next, Detective Superintendent Hannum works to pin John Bodkin Adams down. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades-long disappearance. Now, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Now, back to the story. In August 1956, the retirement town of Eastbourne, England was abuzz. Police and press swirled around local doctor John Bodkin Adams. While rumors of Adams' misbehavior had always circulated, law enforcement's involvement brought a sense of dread. The man who cared for countless residents may have been a murderer. 
That summer, Scotland Yard detective Herbert Hannam began interviewing residents. With the help of famed pathologist Dr. Francis Camps, Hannam constructed a criminal profile on Dr. Adams. He believed that the doctor forced patients to develop opiate and barbiturate dependencies, rendering them vulnerable to his influence. He then forced his way into their wills or extract lavish gifts from them before ultimately killing them with more of these drugs. But Hannam didn't keep his theory to himself. Every night, Hannam would belly up to the local bars and spill his theories to the locals and visiting reporters. Highly inappropriate behavior. Hannam was coloring the town's opinion of Adams as a guilty man and not to mention tipping his cards. The papers printed articles hinting at Adams' guilt. When Scotland Yard caught on to Detective Superintendent Hannam's cavalier antics, they were livid. The Yard couldn't afford to have such a major case be tainted, and by its own investigator. Thinking quickly, the office contacted Percy Hoskins of the Daily Express and asked him to go to Eastbourne and keep an eye on Hannam. Hoskins agreed and immediately caught a train to the seaside town. When Hoskins finally met the notorious doctor, he was taken aback. By late August, some papers were claiming that Adams had killed up to 400 people, so Hoskins assumed the doctor would be on edge. However, Adams didn't seem phased. Perhaps believing Adams' attitude was a front, Hoskins emphasized the legal jeopardy the doctor faced. But Adams remained nonchalant. He clearly didn't care that, just across town, Detective Superintendent Hannam doggedly pursued the 23 most suspicious cases. Hannam re-interviewed those who knew the deceased, noting each and every injection the doctor had delivered. He painstakingly recorded everything. He also took note of several valuable objects Adams had received from his patients. But his investigation really gained traction when he uncovered forged prescriptions. Adams was known to be more than generous with barbiturate and opiate prescriptions, so the forgeries only added to Hannam's skepticism. And that still wasn't all. As it turned out, when Adams worked as an anesthesiologist for the local hospitals during World War II, he apparently had a habit of falling asleep or miscalculating dosages. Hannam was flabbergasted. He couldn't understand how Adams had been able to fly under the radar for so long. Regardless, the detective finally had enough evidence to convict. He was ready. Nearly two months after arriving in Eastbourne and armed with his newfound evidence, Hannam happened to run into Adams on the street. Seeing the target of his investigation, Hannam's ego got the best of him. He confronted Adams about his recent findings. As always, though, Adams defended himself. He explained that he simply used the gifts he received from patients to get around tax laws, 
As for his frequent failure to officially declare such gifts, he said he wanted to lighten the family's burden after the passing of a loved one. He explained that burials and cremations went more smoothly if he didn't advertise that he was a beneficiary in the wills of the deceased. With what seemed like the flick of a wrist, Adams painted himself as a veteran doctor who exercised care and know-how. He created an image of a man in service to his community. Sure, he found a way to get what he was owed, but he certainly wasn't the first to do so. No matter how hard Hannum pressed or how tough he got, Adams maintained his cool, unassuming attitude. The detective resentfully bid his farewell. But when Hannum arrived home that night, an urgent message from Dr. Francis Camps awaited him. Camps had zeroed in on the case of Edith Morell, a wealthy widow. Camps was floored by what he'd found. Apparently, after Edith suffered a stroke back in 1948, Adams became her physician and supplied her with exorbitant amounts of heroin and morphine, several times the average dosage. After her death, Adams received money, silver, and a Rolls Royce. Camps felt that the case served as a definitive example of Adams' murderous methods. The news reinvigorated Hannum's drive for justice. This could be the case that they would take to trial. So Hannum got to work again. In November, the detective showed up at Adams' home with a search warrant. With two other detectives by his side, Hannum knocked aggressively on Adams' door. The doctor greeted him with an irritatingly polite smile. Hannum demanded to see Adams' dangerous drugs register. The dangerous drugs register was a physical book in which doctors kept all the details of the controlled drugs they prescribed. Today, all of this information is collected by pharmacies when doctors order controlled medications for their patients, and it's collated in a state government database. In my home of California, for example, we have the CURES program, which stands for the Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation System. This system is essentially an archive of all Schedule 2, 3, 4, and 5 controlled substances prescribed throughout the state of California. The system is crucial when it comes to holding doctors accountable for their prescribing habits, and it conversely helps doctors by allowing them to view all of a patient's other controlled substance prescriptions to be sure patients are not abusing these medications or getting them from multiple doctors. Ultimately, this databank greatly helps keep patients and doctors honest. In fact, since January of this year, safety mechanisms in regard to controlled substances have beefed up even more. This new mandate requires doctors to send all prescriptions, whether controlled or not, to pharmacies electronically rather than over the phone, which offers a more meticulous and reliable form of record keeping. Things were certainly different in Adam's day. The most doctors could do was keep careful records or risk breaking the law. And this is where Scotland Yard was able to snare 
John Bodkin Adams. Even though it was illegal, Adams casually admitted that he didn't keep a dangerous drugs register. Detective Superintendent Hannum ordered the other officers to check every drawer. He took it upon himself to search the medicine cabinet. It was a mess. He found bottles of barbiturates, but no opiates. But then, Hannum noticed Adams out of the corner of his eye, slipping two bottles into his pocket. Hannum marched over and demanded that Adams hand over the bottles. The usually placid doctor nervously set the bottles on a side table. Hannum squinted to read the labels. Morphine. In less than two hours, Adams was taken to the police station. Perhaps recalling the reporter Percy Hoskins' warning, Adams asked Hannum if there were any serious charges he should be worried about. Hannum, feeling accomplished, marched up to Adams and uttered a single name. Mrs. Morell. Adams allegedly replied, Easing the passing of a dying person isn't all that wicked. She wanted to die. That can't be murder. It is impossible to accuse a doctor. In shock, Detective Hannum left Adams intent on finding the evidence he needed to put him away for good. On November 24, 1956, Dr. John Bodkin Adams was officially charged with forging prescriptions and lying on cremation forms before being released on bail. But Detective Superintendent Hannum believed it was only the tip of the iceberg. He knew there was a murder case to be found. So he had the police gather all of Adams' pharmacy receipts they could find. It turned out, Hannum's instinct was correct. Receipts showed that on a single day in January 1952, Adams purchased 5,000 barbiturate tablets. Hannum also discovered that when Edith Morell was under Adams' care, she received deliveries from a local pharmacy at least four times a week. Hannum couldn't fathom such a drug regimen. Dr. Francis Camps agreed. In his opinion, the amount of drugs that Edith was prescribed likely would have killed her. Unfortunately for Hannum and Camps, Edith Morell had been cremated six years prior so there was no way to prove their theory. But Hannum was on the warpath. He convinced the Crown to charge Adams with murder anyway. He believed he could help a prosecutor figure out a way to convict the doctor. Adams was arrested again on December 19, 1956, though this time he wouldn't be granted bail. In response, Adams rallied support. Recalling how the BMA had previously stepped in to protect doctors' privacy, he believed a similar logic would apply to his murder charges. If he was convicted, then in the future, any doctor whose patient died while under their care could be at legal risk. With this logic, he gained the support 
of the Medical Defense Union. The MDU, or Medical Defense Union, is a nonprofit organization that helps protect doctors against malpractice claims in the UK. Founded in 1885, this union helps doctors deal with things like claims of clinical neglect, patient complaints, and even counseling physicians preparing statements for the media. They also offer round-the-clock, 24-7 medical legal advice for union members and even classes focused on reducing professional risk and improving doctor-patient communications. In the United States, doctors hire attorneys that specialize in medical malpractice when facing legal issues concerning patient care, and they're able to pay for these services with their malpractice insurance. We don't have a union here that's comparable to the MDU, but it's something that's quite advantageous for physicians across the pond. They've really seen it all, and if Detective Superintendent Hannum wanted to fight the MDU, he'd need a shatterproof case. Desperate for harder evidence, Hannum and Dr. Camps exhumed two of Adam's former patients to test their organs for barbiturates and opiates. Regrettably, the bodies were in advanced stages of decomposition and only traces of the drugs were found. Hannum was at his wit's end. Without exacting physical evidence, this case was going to be hard won, at least in the judicial system. One prosecutorial method they considered using was a British legal custom known as system. This process stated that the prosecution could provide evidence from other potential murders that confirmed to the same modus operandi as the primary case at hand, which in this instance was the case of Edith Morell. However, if the prosecution failed to convince a jury of Adam's guilt in the murder of Edith, it would become extremely difficult, if not impossible, to bring additional murder charges against the doctor. With this in mind, the prosecution realized that submitting the other deaths as evidence would be too risky and decided against it. Nevertheless, they created a backup plan. If the jury acquitted Adams for the murder of Edith Morell, they would immediately proceed with a trial for the death of Bobby Hullett. Although they didn't think it would get that far, they believed their case against Adams was rock solid. When the day came, they entered the courtroom, heads held high. The trial began in March of 1957. The prosecution's opening remarks sent shivers through the onlookers in the courtroom. Pacing before the judge, the attorney general described the drugs that Adams had given to Edith Morell. The courtroom shivered as he recounted that Edith was on the maximum dosage of morphine and exceeded the maximum heroin dosage by 75% at the same time. As he wrapped up his speech, the Attorney General laid out Edith's tragic final days. He explained that Adams continued to increase her dosage until it killed her. Finally, he quoted Adam's own words from when Hannum accused him. Can you prove it was murder? The courtroom was hooked. Little did they know, 
of the surprises to come. Up next, Dr. Adam's unpredictable murder trial continues. Imagine being the first person to ever send a payment over the internet. New things can be scary, and crypto is no different. It's new, but like the internet, it's also revolutionary. Making your first crypto trade feels easy with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to kraken.com and see what crypto can be. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc. PVI DBA Kraken. Visit PVI's disclosures at kraken.com slash legal slash disclosures. Now, back to the story. In March 1957, Dr. John Bodkin Adams was on trial for the murder of Edith Morell. One week in, the prosecution's case had been severely undermined, but they still had several legal approaches up their sleeves. With public sentiment on their side, they felt assured they could put Adams away. Believing they needed to pose a more substantial argument, however, their next move was to highlight medical evidence against the doctor. So they called Dr. Arthur Henry Douthwaite to the stand. Douthwaite was prestigious in the medical world, and he was a recognized expert on opiates. The prosecution had enlisted him to point out Adams' suspicious use of morphine and heroin following Edith Morell's stroke, back when he first began treating the widow. Douthwaite claimed that morphine should never be used in the post-care treatment of a stroke. And since Adams had administered morphine after Edith's stroke, Douthwaite believed Adams intended to kill her. For the first time during the trial, Adams had a physical reaction. He shook his head angrily. But Douthwaite continued. He stated that the symptoms Edith suffered at the end of her life were no doubt a sign of morphine withdrawal. Finally, he elaborated by saying that Adams must have deliberately and significantly increased her morphine intake near the end of her life in order to shock her system and kill her. As a witness, Douthwaite was the prosecution's dream. He walked the jury through the exact steps Adams would have taken to kill Edith. But the defense lawyer was again at the ready. He asked Douthwaite a seemingly redundant question. Did he truly believe that morphine should not be used after a stroke? Douthwaite held firm to his opinion. The defense lawyer then waved another stack of papers. It was the nurse's notes from the original hospital where Edith was treated for her stroke. As Douthwaite learned of the alleged treatment, his face reddened and formed a scowl. According to the notes, the hospital staff gave Edith the initial morphine injections after her stroke, not Adams. The courtroom gasped. The defense lawyer hung his head, and Adams almost laughed. Douthwaite had formed his idea of Adams' step-by-step -step murder process based on an assumption. It became clear that the prosecution failed to perform its due diligence. 
and it was all downhill for them from there. And the defense still wasn't finished. They closed out the second week of the trial with an argument still discussed in legal courses today. The defense led the judge and jury down a path that would radically shift the public view toward Adams. He claimed that the doctor gave Edith morphine because he was following protocol from her hospital stay. He then explained that the morphine was meant to treat Edith's pain, the pain of a woman near death. He argued that it was the right thing to do. If Adams couldn't save her, he could at least ease her suffering. The members of the courtroom murmured. Some nodded, indicating their sympathy. The prosecution could only watch as justice slipped from their hands. The trial lasted 17 days, the longest murder trial recorded in Britain at the time. Finally, Justice Devlin stood to address the jury. He cleared his throat and the courtroom fell silent. He acknowledged that shortening a person's life can indeed be viewed as murder. He then added that treatments used to relieve pain may incidentally speed the dying process. This established what later became known in the British legal system as the doctrine of double effect. In essence, the doctrine meant that harm could coexist with healing. When a doctor prescribes a drug in order to ease a patient's pain and suffering, it can sometimes lead to a decline in their overall health. However, in contrast to the doctrine of double effect, a general practitioner in the United States can't employ a drastic or potentially dangerous course of treatment without adhering to very specific guidelines. For example, if a patient's dying and they or their representative tells their doctor they want pain relief as opposed to sustainable treatment, it's the doctor's responsibility to place the patient into a hospice program. Hospice doctors are specialized and legally protected to handle this kind of care, and because of this, they're granted regulatory leniencies when it comes to prescribing controlled substances for palliative care. In regard to our story, sometimes a patient's pain can be overwhelming, and I guess it's possible that Adams was just trying to work within his legal and moral parameters. Maybe he really was faced with a dilemma and had to make a tough choice. That's what the court would now have to decide. The jury was left with an important question to explore. They needed to decide how Adam's use of drugs may have led to Edith's death. Their deliberation took almost no time. On April 9th, 1957, after just 46 minutes, the jury declared Adams not guilty. Adams looked up at the ceiling and delivered a quick prayer. There was no sense in moving forward with the Bobby Hullett case now. There wasn't enough evidence. John Bodkin Adams would not be convicted of murder. 
In the end, however, he did face punishment. Around three months later, he appeared at the Sussex Assizes, a county court where visiting judges from the higher courts of London presided. He was there to answer to Hannam's initial charges, including prescription forgeries, lying on cremation forms, and several offences under the Dangerous Drugs Act, including his lack of a dangerous drugs register. Adams couldn't escape these charges. In September, his license to prescribe dangerous drugs was revoked. The legal dominoes continued to tumble. On November 27th, Adams was officially removed from the medical register. He was now no longer allowed to be a physician in the UK. He may not have been sentenced to prison, but this was almost as big a blow to the prideful doctor. However, Adams was anything but a quitter. After many attempts to rejoin the medical register, he was finally reinstated four years later in November of 1961. He resumed a small private practice almost as though nothing had ever happened. If John Bodkin Adams was indeed a murderer, he had gotten away with all his crimes. This episode has a particularly upsetting aftertaste. However, despite Adams not getting convicted, his actions still radically changed the medical field in the United Kingdom. There's no doubt in my mind that our modern oversight in relation to prescribing controlled substances, even in the United States, has been deeply influenced by cases like Adams. This was ultimately an unsatisfying ending, Alistair. It seems unfair that John Botkin Adams basically got off scot-free with barely a slap on the wrist. This story is especially difficult to digest in that Adams was preying on an extremely vulnerable population, the elderly. We can only hope that this tale of horror serves as a lasting lesson about protecting those who most need it. Even though Adams walked free, the trial and his reputation did lead to some notable changes in the medical and legal systems. First, the doctrine of double effect, which we discussed earlier, but there were also tactical changes to how physicians in the UK handle dangerous drugs. Certain medications now require signed and dated records of all details, including total dosages used. These standards weren't properly codified when Adams treated his patients. That allowed him to slip through the loopholes and get whatever he wanted. In some cases, the consequences were lethal. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on John Bodkin Adams, among the many sources we used, we found The Curious Habits of Dr. Adams by Jane Robbins and The Trial of Dr. Adams by Sybil Bedford extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Drew Moreland, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Murder.